Hey now, welcome to another edition of the Inside BS Show. My name is Dave Lorenzo, and we got a good one for you today. Today we're talking about intellectual property law, but we're also speaking with someone who I think has one of the best personal brands I've ever seen. I can't wait for you to meet today's guest. Ladies and gentlemen, let me introduce you to the satellite girl, Arlen Alonzo. Please welcome her to the Inside BS Show. Arlen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Dave. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Arlen, I just used the brand that I, I mean, I can't forget you because of that brand. You're top of mind all the time. How did you get the nickname Satellite Girl? Well, when I graduated from college with my engineering degree um, in aerospace engineering, my first professional job was to work with Hughes Aircraft Space and Communications Group. And that is a group that was owned by Howard Hughes. And my first job was to build, help build and design weather satellites. In fact, the satellites that I helped design are the grandparents of the current satellites that are orbiting around the planet Earth, tracking hurricanes, you know, telling us when we're going to can expect snow and rain and sunshine and all that good weather stuff. So when you work in the satellite industry, you know that when they assemble the units, okay, it is inside a clean room. And in a clean room, you can't wear heels because they're worried about industrial accidents. I am five feet tall. I haven't grown, you know, in, in height since I was 12. However, in my 20s, when I was a satellite engineer, I was a lot skinnier than I am now. Now, inside the clean room, you, you don't wear heels, you can't wear makeup because no makeup powder dust, and you have to tie your hair up. And you can see I got a lot of hair. So you have to tie your hair up in a ponytail. So I literally look like I was 12 years old a satellite engineer that's 12 years old running around, you know, in the clean room. And I got the nickname Satellite Girl. So years later, when I went into the practice of intellectual property, which of course includes trademarks, I said, look, I got to put my money where my mouth is. So I registered my nickname Satellite Girl. And that's what um, I've used ever since. That is such a great story. I That is one of, like I said before, one of the best personal brands I've ever seen. So Arlen, talk about how you went from engineering into intellectual property law. Uh, was it, was it, did you always want to practice law or did you find your way to that career after, you know, after being an engineer for some time? Well, I started out wanting to do engineering and science because I've always been good in math and science and always been fascinated by the space industry, you know, the space exploration industry. So after college, like I said, I went into satellite building for about 10 years. Then I realized that there is another component of, you know, inventions and, and, and um, the satellite business, and that is protecting it. So I had the opportunity to go to law school, and I did. And of course, my practice, my choice of law is 
intellectual property law, which includes patents, trademarks, and copyrights. And that's okay, kind of so, how I went into it. So after, after being an engineer for 10 years, you went back uh -huh. to law school. Were you working and going to law school at the same time? No, I, I stopped being an engineer and went to law school full time because I really wanted to make sure that I took in that you know, experience of going to law school and fully concentrate on learning the craft of law. So tell the folks who are listening and who are watching why most patent attorneys have an undergraduate degree in engineering or chemistry or some area of science. And, you know, why is that so important? And, you know, what types of patents you work on as a result of your engineering background? Okay. So there are two types of patents um, law that you can practice. One is the transactional patent law, and the other one is the litigation aspect. I happen to practice both. But there are many patent attorneys who only practice one side or the other. So if you just do patent litigation, you don't necessarily need to have a technical degree of any kind. It is helpful, but you don't, you don't need to have it, okay? When you do the transactional part of patents, and that part means you talk to an inventor, you understand their inventive ideas, you prepare the patent application, you submit it to the United States Patent and Trademark Office, and you have conversations, by that I mean written conversations with or written correspondences with the examiner, and you argue for why that patent application that belongs to your client should result in an issued patent. When you want to do that, you have to have a technical background for two reasons. Number one, you need to have the technical understanding of your client's invention. And without the technical background, how can you possibly understand what your client is inventing and how important um, that invention could be or what are the you know novel uses for it and how is it an improvement over what already exists? So you need that technical background. But number two, in order to prepare a patent application and submit it to the patent office, you have to be a registered patent agent or a registered patent lawyer with the United States Patent Office. And that's a second bar, so to speak, that you have to take. In order to sit for that bar, you have to have some kind of technical background. So that's the reason. So Why most you're, attorneys because have you're that licensed degree. because you're licensed in California, you passed the California State Bar exam, and then you had to pass the patent law bar exam. Yes, and the patent law bar exam is federal. So basically, my practice is national. Um, I can practice patent law by preparing patent applications for clients with inventive ideas anywhere in the United States. 
Now, share with uh, with the folks who are listening and watching the breakdown of your of your practice because you're. I mean, being a patent attorney, so being an IP attorney, being an intellectual property attorney, that's already narrow, right? Being a patent attorney makes it even more narrow. Being a patent attorney who also does patent litigation makes it really narrow. Let's zoom out a little bit first. Explain the other types of intellectual property work you do to folks. Okay. Well, intellectual property is basically the protection of, you know, um, assets, okay, of intangible assets. So they cover patents, and there are three different types of patents. We can talk about that in a little bit. They cover trademarks, okay, and along with trademarks, there's trade dress, which is a subset of trademark. And there's also trade secret, which is kind of a subset of trademark as well. And then there's copyright. So there are three big branches of intellectual property. Um, I do work on all three, um, but I concentrate and focus more on the patent side because of its technical background and, and do you do you get do you get referrals from other intellectual property attorneys who don't practice patent law? Um, I do get. In fact, I a lot of my referrals are from other intellectual property attorneys. Um, number one, for example, it could be let's say they a, a new client walked into their office and they say, you know, I have a patent dealing with wireless communications. And that is a, a subspecialty of electrical engineering. And let's say that attorney doesn't have the technical depth in their firm for that type of work, I will get the referral. And I will then be able to, you know, um, work with that client for that specific technical background to get them a patent. Um, in litigation, for example, I could get a referral from another law firm, um, and it's a couple of reasons. Number one, they could have a conflict, so that a legal conflict, so that they cannot take on that client for that litigation case. Or number two, they don't have the bandwidth um, to do that work. Or perhaps number three, it could be geographical. The um, attorney could be in Chicago, in Florida, but the case is in the Central District of California, and the client would rather have an intellectual property attorney in, in you know, in the geographical area where the case is being um, tried. So, so Arlen, various reasons. Yeah, you you mentioned Arlen earlier about the three different types of patents. Tell us what each one is, please. Okay. So the one that is the most popular and the one that's known by most people is the utility patent, okay? Utility patent, according to the law, protects four things. It protects process, so an example is software. It protects machine, an example could be the iPhone. It protects manufacturer, an example could be lighting, let's say a light, um, and it protects composition of matter. An example could be medication, okay? Viagra, pills. So that's ut utility patent, okay? Second type of patent is called a design patent. A design patent protects the ornamental design of something. And I have something for you. I love coffee, 
and I love ice cream. This is a mug, a coffee mug, okay? But it can be protected by a design patent. Why? Because it looks like an ice cream cone. And the fact is, it doesn't have to look like an ice cream cone to be a mug, but it does look like an ice cream cone. So the design protection is the way this looks. Okay. Not the function, but the way it looks. Got it. And that's a design patent. The okay. Third, the third kind of patent is a patent patent, a, a plant patent, and that protects the asexually produced plant. So most of the time, um, you, you hear about Monsanto seed that's being protected. That's protection by a plant patent. So those are the three types of patents. And plant patents, if I'm not mistaken, that's a that's like a subspecialty, right? You have to go yeah. to a very uh, like a you have to go to an attorney that does a lot of those to make sure that they because th that's not it's not something that the everyday person who's or the inventor in his garage or like IBM is not creating plants that have right. to be patent, right? Patent, right. right? Right, exactly. And patent. Plant patent is the one that's least, you know, used and, and filed in terms of all the types of patents. So utilities first, design is second, and plant is a distinct third. So Arlen, could somebody go after both a utility and a design patent if their if their invention is unique? Would they would they need to have both? Oh, absolutely. When you look at, for example, let's take the Apple iPhone. Okay. Um the iPhone itself is protected by tons and tons and tons of utility patents. But the way it looks is protected by several design patents. And the last time I looked in, in, and just did a search because I like doing that, um, I think it was last week, I searched for the number of issued U.S. patents owned by the Apple Corporation. And it's over 30,000. And many hundreds of it are in the design. So it's not just on the iPhone that they have patented design, you know, have design patents to, to cover the way it looks. But also um, they've done it for their, their uh, Macintosh, right? Because when you look at a Macintosh, you know it's a Macintosh, even if it doesn't say it's a Macintosh. So the look and feel that's a design patent. Yeah, that's great. Uh, Arlen, talk to us about the process of, uh, you know, when, when you come to, an, to, a, to a patent attorney, explain to folks the kind of the step-by-step the -step, without a lot of detail, but the step-by-step -step process, because there's, there's a, a very specific thing you need to do first before you can even get into the paperwork of filing. So explain to people how that works. Okay. So when a client calls me, um, and we, we, we engage and we talk about their inventive ideas, okay? The first question I ask them is, do you think that there is something new to your invention? And hopefully the answer is yes, because if there's nothing new, if everybody has done it before, then it will not be granted, it's not patentable. It, the U.S. Patent Office will not grant a patent, okay? So that's the first thing. What I tell a client to do is write down your inventive idea. If you have drawings that come with it, put it down. Send it to me. Let me take a look. 
because I want to understand the client's invention. And then after I've reviewed their idea, we get together and we do what I call an inventor disclosure meeting. And that is the most important meeting, in my opinion, in the patenting process. Because in the inventor disclosure meeting, I start out with the client explaining to me their invention. And usually it's about their most preferred embodiment. It's their, you know, it's their, their baby. It's the way they think that their invention should work. Then, because I've done my homework, I start asking the clients additional questions. And I will say, what if, what about? And that gets the client inventors to think about additional embodiments. And that's important because even if you are not going to practice those additional embodiments, if you put it in your patent application and you get allowed claims that are directed to not just your preferred embodiment, but to all the other embodiments, then you can prevent other competitors from practicing those other embodiments that maybe you don't need to make a product for it, but it's still your intellectual property idea. So the inventor disclosure meeting is extremely important for me, for my practice. It usually lasts two to four hours. And usually after four hours, we don't even think that it's four hours because we are talking intellectual property. We're talking additional embodiments, etc. And then from that point, I will draft the application and then it goes through the review cycle with the client. Once it's approved, we send it in, we filed it with the correct filing papers, and then we wait for the U.S. Patent Office to come back and either give us a notice of allowance saying, congratulations, you're going to get your patent, pay some money and you'll get your patent, or they may have questions in an office action and we respond and then hopefully at the end of the process, it's an issued patent. So I was gonna, I was gonna bring that up. Explain to folks what an office action is. You know, I, I work with a lot of uh, folks who, uh, and in the trademark space, it's called an office action too. So I work with a lot of folks who file trademarks. I work with uh, folks occasionally who file uh, patents and they get this notice and it says at the top office action and they freak out, right? Thinking that it's some really bad thing. That's just questions, right? That's all it is? Well, an office action is a written communication from the examiner, okay? Who is looking at your patent application or your trademark application. And basically, let's say in a patent application, the examiner would have certain things that they want to ask you. So it could be as simple as, gee, you've got some grammatical stuff that we are objecting to and we want you to make that correction. If you don't take that seriously and the time lapse, you could lose your entire patent application and it can become abandoned. abandoned. So that's not a good thing. Now, sometimes there are additional, most of the time there are additional um, rejections, and there are two types of rejections in the patent world. One is called the novelty rejection, which means it's under 35 USC 102. 
So patent attorneys, we referred, we refer to it as a 102 rejection. What that means is the examiner is saying, I'm looking at your invention and I see this other, well, thing, okay, that has been done before your inventive, your filing date. And based on that, I don't think there's anything new in your invention. So you tell me, if you don't agree, tell me why. Okay, that's a 102 rejection. The 103 rejection is obviousness. And most of the time you get that because what the patent examiner is going to say is the following. I am looking at a combination of two things or three things. And when I combine the three, it comes out. It basically reflects your invention. You need to, you the applicant, or in this case, your applicant's attorney, like myself, need to explain to me why it's not that your invention is not obvious based on the three um, things that I've cited. And you explain that, and then you, and then hopefully at the end of the day, the examiner agrees with you and give you a notice of allowance. So let me give you an example that I tell my inventors. Let's say you invented the motorcycle, okay, and and that's what you submit. The examiner comes in and says, "Wait a minute, the Wright brothers invented the bicycle." And I know that the boat, you know, boats out there have motors. So if you put a motor with the Wright Brothers bicycle, don't you have the motorcycle, which is your invention? So why should I give you the motorcycle invention? And that's where the patent attorney comes in with the right legal arguments to say, no, it's not that easy. You don't just take the motor from a motorboat and kind of connect it to a bicycle to get the motorcycle. There are many other features associated with my client's motorcycle invention, and hence my client deserves an issued patent. And that's where we make the arguments. That's great. Arlen, how often do you, like with the same client, how often do you get in front of the same examiner if it's in the same type of, you know, same type of invention? Because they're, you know, these guys, or I say guys, these folks are, they're, they're experts on specific stuff, just like patent attorneys are experts in specific areas, right? So do you come across the same people for the same type of invention over and over again? Um, yes and no. And here's the reason. The patent office is divided into different departments. So if you have um, a biomedical type device, a mechanical type device, or an electrical engineering type device, your application will go to different departments. But even within the department, for example, in electrical engineering, there are a lot of different subunits. Now, each examiner belongs to a unit. And in the unit, they have many, many, many examiners. Um, most likely, um, if you are working, let's say, for that particular company and the invention is in the same technical space, you will be in the same unit. However, um, because they have many, many, many examiners in those units, you're probably not going to get the same examiner. 
Now, there is one exception where um, you may get the same examiner, and that is when you file a continuation application or a divisional application or sometimes a CIP, continuation in part application. And because the examiner already have, have your parent patent, your initial patent, the continuation application, divisional application, or continuation in part application will probably have a better chance or better probability of being assigned to the same examiner. Not always, but a better probability. And that okay. may be good or bad. So Arlen, let's talk a little bit about your clients now. Who's the, who's the ideal client for you? Who's the client okay. you like to work with the most? Okay. Any clients with any inventive ideas that value protecting intellectual property. Um, and they can be an entrepreneur, someone with, you know, starting out with an inventive ideas. And in fact, I work with many entrepreneurs where it is their first patent or their second patent or their third patent. And then businesses. Most of my, my core clients are closed, um, privately owned businesses that are either owned by a family um, or by partnerships. And they use patent as, an, or they use intellectual property, I should say. It's not just patents, but also trademark in most cases to enhance their business. Um, trademark, for example, to allow their customers to identify products that belongs, that come from them. As, and identify them as the source of whether it's a, you know, a hardware product or a software product. And then, in, and then patents to protect those ideas so that their competitors can't make it cheaper or faster and then try to take away market share. Okay, so Arlen, when people are listening to this or or watching this, what do, what do they have? What do, what should they hear in order to call you or in order to reach out to you? What are they listening for? Okay, so if they say, you know, I thought of something new, and it's never been done before, or I don't think it's been done before, or I think it's an improvement over this other thing that I bought and I see in the market, but it's never been done before. I may have an inventive idea that could be patented. That's a time to call me. If, for example, they're opening up a store, okay, and they're selling a product, whether it is in the food business, whether it is in hardware business, whether it's a software business, and they say, gee, I want to have a name, a branding or a logo that's going to identify my product, hardware or software, to the consumer, then we need to talk about trademark protection. Okay, so that's great. Let's, um, let's touch just briefly on litigation, particularly patent litigation. And I want you to, there's a lot of litigators who listen to this and I want you to warn them that they should not try to do patent litigation without an expert in patent litigation. Explain to the litigators who are listening and to everyone else, 
why you need someone who's an expert in patent litigation involved in a patent litigation case. Okay. Well, patent litigation is a little bit of a different animal than the regular litigation because there is a technical component that is part of the litigation. And in fact, in patent cases, there is a special hearing called the Markman hearing that is not in any other type of litigation. And what the Markman hearing is, is a interpretation of claim language. So when you are in a patent, okay, there's three parts to a patent. There is the specification, which is where you write, you know, and explain what the invention is and any background that you want to add to it. There is the drawing part where you draw up your invention. And for software, for example, there's usually a flow diagram that is part of the drawing. But the third piece of a patent, which is the most important part, is called the claims. And that's where you write up what your inventive idea is and all the parts that make up that inventive idea, that make up that software or that make up that machine or that make up that, you know, manufacturing um, um, article that protects your invention. Now, claims are written in patent legalese. And because of that, when you get into an infringement, there is, there has to be an interpretation of what each of the word or phrases in a claim means. And so there's a special process, a special hearing, so to speak, in front of a judge. It's called a Markman hearing, where each side of the party, the, the patent owner and the alleged infringer, and their attorney, respective attorneys, and in fact, we will bring in expert witnesses to tell the judge and explain to the judge what each of the word or phrase of a particular claim mean. And then the judge decides and give you a claim construction. That claim construction is very important because depending on how the claim is construed or what it's supposed to mean, that could, that could interpret into whether or not there is infringement. So to understand and have and propose the right construction for your client's case, it's good and necessary to have a technical understanding of your client's invention. No, that's terrific. All right, Arlen, before before we get into the the final segment where um, I'm going to ask you for three things to share with our audience, three things they should take away, I want to I ask you uh, one more question about something that's a little bit personal. So I understand from, you know, from talking to you, you speak four different languages. What, what languages do you speak? Obviously English, right? Because we're speaking <laughs> English right now. What other languages do you speak? Okay, well... The reason I speak four languages is because um, my mother is Taiwanese. Um, she was born in Taiwan, so was I. And my father was Filipino, and they met in Taiwan. So from my father's side, he speaks um, the main Filipino dialect, which is Tagalog. And I learned to speak Tagalog because I, um, I was fortunate enough 
to live in the Philippines for a few years when I was a child, so I learned Tagalog. My native language um, is Taiwanese, which is Fukinese, or some people call it Hokkien, Hokkienese, and um, that is from the province of Fujian in, in China, but um, about 350 years ago, the Fukinese people kind of left China and went all over southern southeastern Asia. So you can find Fukinese in Malaysia, in Indonesia, in Philippines, in um, Vietnam, etc., and mostly in Taiwan. That's my native language, Taiwanese or Hokkienese. Um, in Taiwan, of course, um, I guess after World War II, um, Chiang Kai-shek, the nationalist Chinese, went to Taiwan and formed a government there. And the official language for Taiwan, the island of Taiwan, is Mandarin, which is the same language spoken in mainland China. And being in Taiwan, I had to learn Mandarin. So I, wow. I know Mandarin, Taiwanese, and, um, and Tagalog, and, and some English. I must say. But there is one thing I need to say, Dave, and that is knowing Fukinese is extremely, extremely useful when it comes to shopping in Southeast Asia. Because, for example, when I was working on Malaysia Sat, which was a satellite proposal for Malaysia, um, I was there um, in Malaysia, and in my off times, I would go shopping in the Malaysian street markets. And a lot of the vendors are Hokkienese ethnically, and they speak Hokkien or Fukinese. It's the same language. So when I go and bargain with them, if you are an American, the price is like 10 times higher than what they would normally sell to a local. However, if you speak Fukinese with them, although my accent will be a little bit different, they have asked me, well, where are you from? And I would say Taiwan. So then I will probably pay double rather than 10 times what the locals would pay. So it was <laughs> extremely, extremely helpful to know a different language. That's great. Do you, can you, um, I know it's very difficult to write Mandarin. Can you write in Mandarin? No, I cannot. And I, I that's one of the regrets. Um, when I was... When, as, a, as a child in Taiwan, and I lived in Taiwan for about uh, 10 years, then went to the Philippines for a few more years, and then immigrated to the United States with my family um, as a teenager. But when I was in Taiwan, my mother and father made the decision to put me in an American school. And so I never got to learn to write officially the Chinese characters, which is something that I do regret. Um, because it's hard to order, you know, food in a in a in an ethnically Chinese restaurant that's authentic because their their menus are going to be all written in Chinese. Yeah. So I yeah. I just have to order by memory. <laughs> so if you if you ever end up speaking to MJ, who's the producer of this show, she also she's my assistant. She's tremendously helpful to me. She speaks. Tagalog. She's oh. uh, she's she's Filipino. She actually uh -huh. lives and works in the Philippines, and she's amazing. She's incredibly helpful. She's probably one of the best people I've ever had work with me 
but she lives and works in the Philippines. Her English is perfect, by the way. I mean, you what? would never even know that she was in the Philippines if you talked to her because her English is amazingly uh-huh. perfect. But she, she speaks, she reads, she writes Tagalog because she lives in the Philippines. So if you ever, if you ever have a conversation with her, bust out some tag, Tagalog and you'll be, you'll be absolutely amazed. We also had a very close family friend whose family owned a restaurant where my wife is from in Jersey City and they were Filipino and they spoke uh, Tagalog. So we, I, you know, we know, uh, we, 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 can, we, we can speak a couple of words of Tagalog, but it's, it's always amazing to me, and maybe this is because uh, the Spanish, uh, I guess, I don't, I don't think the Spanish discovered the Philippines, but they, they, there were a lot of Spanish-speaking people in the Philippines. There are a lot of Filipino people who speak Spanish. So I yes. thought for sure yeah. when you said you spoke four languages, you were going to tell me that you spoke Spanish too. But it's even better that you speak uh, Mandarin and, uh, and you know, the, the dialect in Taiwan. So I think that's great. Well, you know, living in Southern California, I do understand some Spanish. And in fact, there are a lot of Spanish words that are very, very similar to the Tagalog words and vice versa. And in fact, you know, my last name, Alonso, that's my maiden name. And that is Spanish because in the Philippines, a lot of the Filipinos converted their last names to Spanish last names. Now, in my case, though, I do have a grandmother who was a mestiza, meaning that she was half Spanish. So I do have a little bit of Spanish blood. And Certainly, I know all the Spanish desserts in Spanish, <laughs> so, so that's helpful. But I do want to say something to MJ, your assistant, who has been extremely helpful um, in helping me arrange this, um, you know, this, this um, spot today. And so, MJ, salamat po, oh, <laughs> which means great. thank you. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you so much. So, you know, when you were talking about bargaining and, and speaking the right language to bargain, I think about I, I live in southwestern Miami-Dade. And over the years, because I, I, I worked in the hospitality industry and because my wife grew up speaking Spanish and now we teach our kids Spanish, my, my Spanish is okay. So when I go to the store here, like the where I live in Miami, I speak Spanish when I go to the store because it's just easier because everybody speaks Spanish and sometimes it's a little bit harder. Like, or if you want to get your car fixed or you're going to, like even sometimes at the doctor or the dentist's office, it's just easier to speak Spanish because people feel more comfortable speaking in Spanish. So there's a huge advantage to speaking uh, multiple languages, uh, even in the United States, huge advantage. All right, Arlen, now take a minute and think about three things you want folks to take away from our time together, three things you want them to remember. While you're doing that, I need to remind folks that we are brought to you by My Revenue Roadmap Guide. So if you're listening to the show, you're watching the show, and you want to grow your revenue, I'm going to give you for free the exact guide that I use with my clients. Here's what you need to do. Go to this website, RevenueRoadmapGuide.com, RevenueRoadmapGuide.com. Enter your contact info there, and you'll be able to download the same guide that I use with my clients, RevenueRoadmapGuide.com. This is my gift to you for listening and for watching the show. I also want to remind you that earlier in the show, you listened to or you watched or you uh, maybe overheard a Sandrowski Business Minute. 
Sandrowski Corporate Advisors is a CPA firm and they work all over the United States. They help people save money on their taxes. They help privately held businesses with their organizational structure as well as their taxes. And they also help high net worth individuals. If you want to reach out to Sandrowski Corporate Advisors, all you need to do is call 866-717-1607. Sandrowski Corporate Advisors is a CPA firm with a different perspective. If you want to connect with Arlen Alonzo, the satellite girl, all you need to do is Go to the show notes, scroll down in the show notes. You'll see there a link to Arlen's website. You can click on that and enter your information on her contact page and she'll get right back to you. You can also call her at 310-853-3827, 310-853-3827. Okay, Arlen, now it's time for you to share with our audience the three things you want them to remember. What are those three things? Okay, so the very first thing is in any business, I believe that if you look hard enough, there is always intellectual property assets to protect. Whether that is through trademark, like your, the name of your, the name or the logo of your of your business, or the name of let's say certain products that you sell, that's protected by trademark. Or there could be inventive ideas that you may have, whether that is through the way you do business. Um, your, um, the, you know, anything that you can do to improve your product or your software, that's protected by patents. Um, the other thing also is, you know, trade secrets. Um, an example could be your customer list. That could be protected by trade secret. Um, it could, you could have the way you package your product or the way you package your software that could be protected by trade dress. Or perhaps you could have um, a business brochure that you have a particular design on the outside that is particularly captivating, and that could be protected by copyright. So my first and most important um, takeaway is that in every business, there is intellectual property to protect, and it could be worth money and improvement to your business. So that's the first thing. The second thing is like anything else that is worthwhile protecting, don't do it yourself. Contact an intellectual property attorney to help you identify the various assets that can be protected and to help you do the protection. Because you wanna do it right, there are certain rules with the patent office and if you don't do it right, um, and then you say, gee, you know, my competitor's infringing, but you didn't do it right and didn't obtain the, the intellectual property rights, you have nothing to go on. And then the third thing and most important thing is protect, protect, protect your intellectual property because it can only help your business thrive and grow. That was great. Those are three great tips. Thank you, Arlen. And thank you for joining us today on the Inside BS Show. We really appreciate it. This was a great overview of intellectual property and patent law. So thanks again for all the information you've shared with us. Thank you, Dave. Have a great day. All righty, folks. That'll do it for this episode of the Inside BS Show. My guest today was Arlen Alonzo, the satellite girl. If you want to reach out to her, 
Just scroll down in the show notes. You'll see a link there to her website. Click on that. Enter your contact info there, and she'll get right back to you. Or if you want to call her, you can dial 310-853-3827. 310-853-3827. Until next time, my name is Dave Lorenzo. We'll see you right back here for another edition of the Inside BS Show. Until then, here's hoping you make a great living and live a great life.